Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The hate and terror from last week is saying something to us. While the perpetrators of the mail bombings, the shooting of the African-American shoppers, the massacre of the Jewish synagogue, all these things happened in different places by different people who don't seem to know each other. But the common thread is that hate is being empowered. It is plain to see. We're going to talk about that now with Stephen Gardner. He's a senior research analyst at Political Research Associates. He studies uh, white nas- nationalism and anti-Semitism, and he's been writing about the violent consequences of anti-Semitic bigotry. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you. Um, you look at this all the time, but I think it seems to most people like we reached some kind of tipping point recently. Um, does it seem like that to you? Is Are the actions that we're seeing um, kind of the culmination of something? Well, I, I don't know, know if they're a culmination. We, we, can't, we don't want to look at predicting the future, but um, certainly we've seen an escalating crisis just below the level of, of what will pop up on people, people's sort of uh, awareness for months now and uh, escalating, um, worsening political polarization and background hate speech driven from the far right in the United States for for years, um, certainly since the, the earliest, uh, the beginnings of the Obama administration. I wanted to say something about um, George Soros and anti-Semitic bigotry. Uh, obviously, George Soros has been someone who has attracted a lot of attention from uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary for a long time. And uh, but it was just earlier this month that uh, Donald Trump, you know, recently said that, um, you know, the women who uh, confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator were paid by George Soros. What what kind of thing um, is going on here with George Soros and, and the attacks against him? Well, George Soros is an exemplary figure. He's filling a space in anti-Semitic discourse as as understood in different ways by different parts of the political spectrum. So uh, he, George Soros for, for Donald Trump and, and people who are, are maybe closer to him is an exemplar of the, the financial or liberal or global elite, which in, in many circles, that's, that's a euphemism. That's a code word for the Jews. The Jews understood... Um, not as ordinary members of our society, but as kind of a, a demonic evil that controls the world from behind the scenes, or tries to, or wants to. So references to George Soros setting up the the Kavanaugh protests or funding the uh, the caravan of refugees and migrants uh, coming from coming towards the U.S. border from Central America, or um, buying having a Democratic political candidates as puppets. All of this is just stock and trade for uh, for anti-Semites. And you can take the exact same words that that Trump uses and that his supporters use, and you can find the same words on the, the sort of neo-Nazi white supremacist right. The only difference is uh, when they have Soros in those images, they'll they'll brand him with a star of David, literally in, in a caricature. They'll say. George Soros, Puppet Master, and Puppet Master is a centuries-old image uh, for for condemning Jews as a people, for um, undermining European, Western, Christian, take your pick, American now civilization. 
Well, now that we have something like this, like the president uh, talking about George Soros and uh, people are uh, emboldened to act, is that the the essence of what's going on here, that uh, people who feel like their white nationalism is under attack are going out and and taking, taking up arms against people? Well, I mean, I think it's important to say that this is part of a a larger pattern. So it's not as simple as people say hateful things, leaders say hateful things, and people respond. The pre-existing underlying bigotry is there. It's baked into our culture. Most most people, of course, are not open anti-Semites, but pretty much everyone in our culture understands anti-Jewish stereotypes the same way they understand um, uh, anti-black stereotypes or anti-Latino stereotypes or anti-Muslim stereotypes. It's baked into our culture. A certain number of the population will respond to these messages when conditions have already been polarized so that instead of thinking of political opponents whom we oppose because of their policies and ideas, but people are, are people. President Trump his supporters, and many others. Um, Again, he didn't start this, but the political situation is polarized to the degree where we're thinking about enemies, people who have threatened the very existence of, quote, white Christian American civilization who are trying to create, to, to generate white genocide by bringing brown migrants and uh, Islamic terrorists uh, sneak them into the country to to hurt us. I mean, it's an absurd proposition, but it's a proposition that resonates with fear. I'm talking with Stephen Gardner, a senior research analyst at Political Research Associates. He studies white nationalism and anti-Semitism. You know, I, I keep thinking about the former Yugoslavia and the outbreak of the war there and the the things that were being said were seemed ridiculous at the time to people who were on the outside, but enough people inside the former Yugoslavia kind of bought into the the hatred and the division, and things escalated to such an enormous degree. The ultimate um, you know fruition of this was a, was a civil war. Um, what kind of you know how do you put this thing back in a box? How do people um, you know get get back a hold of the discourse? Well, I mean, it's it's a key question. And the answer is you have to get people talking. You have to, to de-escalate the rhetoric. You have to have solidarity. So for, for those who, are, who want to oppose what, what President Trump has been doing, and this is, has nothing to do with legal culpability or what his intents were, but the outcomes of, of his speech. Um, if you if you want to oppose that, suggesting retaliation and so on, this is not going to help. We have to to work together. We have to see each other as human beings, um, Jews and Muslims, Muslims and, and black folk, black folk and uh, people from uh, people from who identify as white. We we have to 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 talk to each other. But as we talk to each other, we can't ignore the real problems. That what, what has been generated is a crisis of trust in the political, in the fabric of our democracy, in our political discourse. It's a crisis of trust that leads to, to, to people, some small faction of, of, of the population, thinking that violence is the only uh, possible response. 
retaliatory violence, whether from the state through an escalation of militarization of policing, for example, or from individuals escalating their rhetoric, which so far I have not seen that much of, I, I, I'm happy to say, um, th this is not going to help. What we need is solidarity. We need to, to find safety through coming together um, as, as people who care about democracy and humanity and trusting each other. And that's not in some, some vague sense. It's literally getting out into our communities and talking to people, meeting with them, standing together, looking each other in the eyes and voting your conscience. Uh, and, and I would hope against anti-Semitism. I'm not going to tell anyone how to vote, but uh, I think we can say voting against anti-Semitism is a good thing. I wanted to ask you a question about hyper-masculinity and this kind of uh, white nationalism and anti-Semitism. Uh, there seems to be something to that. Um, what, what, what is going on with um, kind of virulent masculinity and, and these kind of attacks? Uh, there seems to be some kind of uh, macho thing going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's absolutely right. The, the, it's not, no, no uh, accident, no um, coincidence that the perpetrators here are middle-aged men. I mean, in this case, they happen to be middle-aged white men uh, who, in fact, in the white nationalist movement, this is the, the single most um, single group that commits the largest number of acts of political violence in our country by far. Um, but the, the masculinity issue is also baked into it's, it's deeply a part of white nationalism and white supremacy. Um, and of course, uh, this kind of masculinity that is uh, associated with aggression and with sort of making demonstrations of showing worth through a willingness to to act violently in the world to show commitment through violence. This this goes far beyond white nationalism. Uh, it's, uh, again, another problem of our political culture. And just to put that into perspective, the dog whistles for white nationalism and for um, anti-Semitism are also, at the same time, dog whistles for uh, for extreme forms of masculinity, aggressive masculinity. They're, they're not just saying hate Jews. They're saying they're calling people to act out in a, in a violent way, in a confrontational way that treats people as something other than human. And that's that's part of it. There's a great report by the ADL that came out a little while ago looking at the ways, in fact, that the, the organized white supremacist movement intentionally reached out to uh, online communities of, of men who were complaining about women who were misogynist, who were... Uh, um, wanting to say that women and feminism are the the ultimate cause of problem in the world, which is, you know, this is a parallel kind of demonization to anti-Semitism. Um, and in some ways, the, who, who you blame is somewhat interchangeable uh, in, in the way these kinds of uh, scripted violence uh, understandings work. And this was very successful for the white nationalists to reach out to the to the organized misogynists in the so-called manosphere. They recruited a lot of people and uh, um, uh, bad for the rest of us, but um, these are, these are um, political bedfellows. 
Uh, is there any way that we can um, get a handle on the propagation of this kind of um, stuff? You know, people, you know, we're watching Fox News could turn to uh, asylum seekers from Latin America now as, as their main headlight of the morning. They're just moving. You, you talked about the interchangeability of, of the other, and they're just moving on to the next other. It just um, keeps going. Yeah, and I, I think that for those of us who, who want to act from a place of goodwill and good faith, that the only way to get a handle on this is to to respond to these calls, these dog whistles and these um, exaggerations and uh, demonizations of the other, of black folk, of Jews, of women, with, with our voices. We have to speak together and say, uh, not in return that that makes Fox News the devil. It's that they is to say to each other, to say it out loud, that this is counterproductive, that this is destructive speech that may be legal in the United States, and I wouldn't make it illegal, but uh, it's hurtful to everyone and to, to recognize that. Of course, certain platforms like the, the social media platform Gab has become notorious for uh, hosting this kind of, of violent speech, and um, it has recently been deplatformed because no hosting service is now willing to continue to host it. We'll see if that sticks. Stephen Gardner is a research analyst at Political Research Associates. He studies white nationalism and anti-Semitism. He's been writing about the violent consequences of anti-Semitic bigotry on his blog. Thanks a lot for joining us, Stephen. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about sea level rise on our series, Puerto Reconstruction. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For today's Puerto Reconstruction segment, we are going to pull the lens back and talk about sea level rise and recovery efforts. Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore is a new book by Elizabeth Rush that profiles people who are seeing flooding change their lives. Elizabeth, it's good to meet you. Thanks for having me, Jerome. And Elizabeth is in town, and she is going to be in conversation this evening with Rob Moore tonight at 6 p.m. at the Harold Washington Library. Um, Rob Moore is a senior policy analyst at the Natural Resources Defense Council and has been working a lot with uh, the National Flood Insurance Program and policies on that. Thanks a lot for joining us, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jerome. Um, I wanted to start with you getting into this, Elizabeth, because you are are not someone who was— you know, you got inherently interested in sea level rise in Bangladesh, and it took you on an odyssey. That's absolutely correct. Um, I was working in 2011 as an international journalist, and I was sent to write a story on the India-Bangladesh border fence by Le Monde Diplomatique, an international newspaper. And I had about a month and a half to sort of steep myself in this issue in the border fence. And I found in my time in Bangladesh 
that when I asked about the border fence, a lot of folks would tell me that it itself wasn't really a problem. Their main concern was that um, saline had started to appear in the aquifer. And I remember really clearly spending an afternoon with a young man named Faharul, and he showed me all of his plants, all of his, all of his mustard greens that were dying because of saline inundation. And he said, you know, because we can't grow the food that we need on our family land anymore, you know, members of my family have already left. And that's when I started to understand that sea level rise wasn't a problem for the future. And it was already leading to migrations away from the coast in the present tense. So I came back to the United States and I decided to look for places here that sort of fit, faced a similar set of circumstances and where people were facing difficult decisions about what to do. Rob, I wanted to ask you how you got involved with flooding as an issue. I understand you were with the National Guard at one time and you, were, you saw flooding firsthand yourself and this got you into it. Yeah, in uh, 1993, uh, I was a member of the National Guard. I'd just actually begun graduate school at the University of Illinois. Literally two weeks, uh, I had lived in Champaign, had begun my thesis research there, and my guard unit got activated for the 500-year flood on the Mississippi River in 1993. And, uh, yeah, I spent three weeks futilely throwing sandbags into the void, um, hoping that the waters would uh, be held back. Um, and that was a real eye-opener for me and got me involved with water resources issues in general. Um, and then after Hurricane Sandy, I was working in New York State at that time, and that was the big event for me that made me realize, much as Elizabeth realized from her travels to Bangladesh, that climate change was no longer a future threat, that the threat was real, it was here, and we were going to we no longer had the option to simply look at this as we have to fix the causes of climate change, and then we won't have to deal with the impacts. The, the impacts are now, and they are growing in time, and um, they carry now an equal urgency as dealing with the causes. You see this so clearly in the people in your book. Could you t talk about... I think a lot of people think of coastal territory as being nice territory where people build high-rises and luxury hotels and things. Um, but you're, the people in your book are kind of the opposite of that. <laughs> they're, um, sure. they're low income. Yeah. So that was a huge, huge surprise for me while I was at work on Rising. I came back to the United States. I thought, okay, I'm going to find the neighborhoods that are flooding now. And one of the things that I quickly realized was that if I wanted to find places in particular in the co on the coast that were flooding now, I was probably going to look for communities that were sited on top of or alongside tidal wetlands. As it turns out, um, often, not always, but often, those are lower or middle-income communities. They live atop land that even before seas were rising was flood-prone. Um, and that land sort of entered into the private property market, often slightly undervalued compared to other adjacent parcels that weren't as flood-prone. So that was a huge eye-opener for me to realize that some of the most vulnerable to this climate threat um, were folks who are socially vulnerable, economically vulnerable going into climate change and that climate change was exacerbating some of those vulnerabilities. Uh, your book is so um, interesting in, in that you, you really try to go out and talk to some of these people and it is hard to, it, hard to even 
get on the same page with them, really. Uh, you, you spend a lot of time just trying to really get uh, you know, in their decision-making process, because they're eventually going to make a decision about whether they flee or not, and and it's a hard one. Absolutely, I see here you have a bust of Studs Terkel, right and me. right yeah, behind you, you're, you're doing a little bit of that. Um, yeah, I feel like you know that was a guiding principle in this book. How do you get people on the front lines of these issues? on the front lines of the climate change issue to really speak in their own voice about their experiences. Because to them, you know, often I would walk into an interview and I would try to leave my discourse at the door. I didn't care if someone was going to talk to me about climate change or CO2 emissions. What I wanted to know was if they were flooding, if they were flooding worse and worse and what they were doing about it. And I wanted to give them the microphone so that they could sort of enter into this conversation in a way that felt authentic and mapped onto their lived experience. And uh, you, you, the two of you kind of come together over this issue of uh, national flood insurance programs, and you're meeting people in the book who, who have it or don't have it. And um, I don't think most people listening to this program know anything really about national flood insurance. Uh, Rob, what is it? So the National Flood Insurance Program actually does three things. Um, as the name implies, it sells you insurance. So um, here in the United States, uh, private insurers generally do not sell insurance to cover flood risk. So flooding is not something that's covered by a typical homeowner's policy. You have to buy additional coverage through the National Flood Insurance Program, which is a federalized, taxpayer-underwritten insurance program. It was Obamacare for flood risk. 30 years before we had Obamacare for health insurance purposes. Um, But it also does two other important things beyond just insuring flood risk. It sets minimum building codes and standards that 22,000 communities in the United States have adopted that are supposed to help guide development, are supposed to help guide development out of flood-prone areas and towards safer areas. And it's also responsible for producing flood risk maps uh, that are used for virtually every single building decision, engineering decision, architectural decision made in the United States about where to build, how to build, and what to build. And the program, um, there is virtually no aspect of the program uh, that is functioning the way it was intended. Uh, So we're getting these very uh, perverse results in terms of more people living in areas that are prone to flooding rather than fewer, uh, more infrastructure at risk, um, and that's um, attributable to many factors. But one of the biggest liabilities we have is that there is no aspect of this federal policy that recognizes that climate change is happening, that sea levels are rising, and that flood risk is increasing even on inland waterways. So, so you've got um, people whose houses are being rebuilt time and time again even though they should move. <laughs> so in, and the, the program is in hock in a big way. That's, the, that's part right. of the hockiness of the program. Yeah. Unfortunately, one, one of the effects of flood insurance has been that, especially for lower-income people, people can, can actually be trapped by the flood insurance program. So people receive relatively low-cost insurance um, so that they have coverage. Uh, they flood, they file a claim, they get assistance to rebuild, and then they flood again, and they get assistance to rebuild, and then they flood again, and they get assistance to rebuild. Even if that person would prefer 
to move somewhere safer. And frankly, who wouldn't prefer to, you know, after three floods, it's pretty fatiguing after a while. Yeah. You know, nobody really wants to live in that situation. And even though a, a homeowner may want to relocate, they often, they can't afford to just abandon their home. Few people can. Um, and there's very little assistance to do anything but rebuild. And it becomes difficult to sell your home. I mean, if your home has flooded two, three, four times, you're also watching the market value of your house decrease. So if you've got a mortgage, sometimes, you know, that can push you into this category of you can't really afford to stay there, but you also can't exactly afford to leave either. Right. We're talking with Elizabeth Rush, the author of Rising, and Rob Moore from the Natural Resources Defense Council. They're in town. They're uh, going to do an event on the way at the Harold Washington Library tonight at 6 o'clock. And coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about the 100th anniversary of the Chopin Theater. Um, you know, is there though Congress has to do something about the um, National Flood Insurance Program at some point. Uh, what is it? They seem to be passing up chances to do something. But if they were going to try to do something that would be rational for people who want to get out of a flood-prone area and make economic sense, there there seems to be options. Yeah, one of the biggest things that, that we've been pushing for uh, is to provide much more assistance for people to actually relocate. It's often more cost-effective to help people who want to relocate do just that. Um, and there's a variety of ways that that can be provided, both through the flood insurance program directly and through other programs that federal, state, and local agencies supply. Um, those are, those efforts can be very difficult um, for a variety of reasons. But you know, we're we're faced with a situation with climate change. Some of the projections indicate that between four and 13 million Americans could be displaced by the end of this century. So. We are, we are faced with a choice of either providing more assistance to help equitably relocate those Americans or have a completely unplanned migration over the next eight decades and beyond. And I think from a societal standpoint, one of those choices clearly has advantages, and one of those choices is clearly a bad one. I will let your listeners determine which one. We can have a quiz later. To, people can choose <laughs> which of those they think is which. Let's plan, Rob. Let's plan. <laughs> um, you know, it's um, interesting to compare ourselves to other things in the natural environment. And, and in the book, there's other... There's a lot of things in the natural environment, in the wetland environment, that are just going extinct. We, we, I guess human beings can get up and move out of some of this. But I was struck in your book by the um, unique stuff that is just... Um, in danger from the wetland uh, situation. Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that I found while working on Rising was just how important this idea of relocation is. And I, I have to say that um, I think in an abstract sort of policy standpoint, it often gets labeled as a four-letter word. But there have been really interesting relocation projects all around the country that are helping people move out of the floodplain, away from risk, and a lot of residents are actually really interested in doing that. That was a huge surprise to me. And it turns out that moving out of, you know, tidal wetlands also has all of these other um, positive benefits that come along with it when you start to think about wetland species. So uh, about a little bit more than 50% of our endangered species in this country are wetlands dependent. 
And we also know that wetlands, um, as seas rise, as seas have risen in the historic past, we know that they can keep pace with a little bit of fluctuation in the height of the ocean. So wetlands also migrate up and in when they can. Um, one of the biggest things that sort of stops that inland migration for, for wetland species is when we've built a community along the backside of that wetland. So if you've got, you know, I love riding this old uh, train line out of uh, the East Bay bike path in Rhode Island, but the reality is that bike path runs right along the backside of a lot of the East Bay's wetlands. And if we want to give them a chance to move up and in, um, we have to get out of the way, and that probably means moving that bike path sort of out of the floodplain as well. And you see lots of really amazing animals, um, migratory birds, egrets, herons, uh, salt marsh harvest mice and sparrows. So we're not the only things, um, you know, vulnerable to sea level rise. And the sooner that we can wrap our minds around that as well, the more likely we are to give them a chance to make it into the next century. You start the book with a quote. Tell us about the quote. It's, it kind of speaks to this. Sure. So I start, I'm wondering if you're thinking of attention is prayer or the John Bear Mitchell quote. John Bear Mitchell. Okay. Um, I should say that that quote, it's um, John Bear Mitchell is a, a Penobscot historian and He's a member of the Penobscot Nation, and he said something really fascinating. He said, um, you know, we Penobscot people, we continue to have the caribou in our ceremonies, even though they don't live here anymore. And he's talking about, you know, the Penobscot live in Maine. And uh, European sort of colonization wiped out the caribou. They wiped out the caribou from that region of North America. And I find... That idea that we can, as we lose touch, as we start to lose things that we've depended upon, places that we call home, um, one of our greatest adaptation techniques is really to tell the stories that will keep those places alive in our minds and our memories and our hearts. And that, I think, is a, a benefit that we have that might not be as readily available to, you know, Spartina alterniflora or the salt marsh harvest mouse. Uh, it, it, it's um, it's so sad, but the people you meet in your book who are really wedded to the places they are, they're they're thinking about that all the time. They're thinking about taking it with them all the time. That is a part of the displacement pain. Absolutely, you know. So there's a chapter in the book that takes place along the eastern side of Staten Island, and after Hurricane Sandy. Nine different coastal communities there started to advocate. They wanted to be bought out. They wanted to retreat from their flood-prone homes. Um, for many, this was, you know, the third flood in a decade. And they three of those communities won um, their bid to retreat. And I watched, in the course of writing Rising, um, I watched, you know, over 600 homes get bulldozed and the land itself returned to Tidal Marsh. I was just back out on Staten Island this summer, and I got to meet with all three leaders of the buyout movements. All three of them with, lived within three miles of their original homes, out of the floodplain, um, up Tote Hill. Staten Island has a lot of topographical diversity. And I asked, you know, how many people who participated in the buyout stayed on the island? 
And Joe Tyrone told me 80%. And I thought, there's no way that's possible. Um, and then I got contacted by a researcher who actually studied the amount of people who stayed on Staten Island after the buyouts. And it is indeed 79%. So I think it's fascinating to think about this idea that a buyout doesn't have to fracture a community. Um, it doesn't have to lead to the hemorrhaging of property taxes. All those folks, you know, 80% of them still have the same butchers. They still go to the same grocery stores. They still hang out together on the weekends. What's changed is that they're not vulnerable to flood risk. And I think that that's um, a really important adaptation story to tell. Um, you guys are going to talk tonight at the Harold Washington uh, Library. Um, Rob, what are you going to talk about? What do you want to, what do you, what's your best question? Let's steal it right now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I think um, Elizabeth's book is so powerful because of the, the personal narrative that she brings to it, both her own journey in learning from the people affected, but also giving voice to those um, who are deeply impacted by the results that we're already experiencing from climate change. Um, just as you led off this segment, we often have this perception in the United States that people who are living in vulnerable areas are the more affluent and that we're somehow, by providing government assistance, we are just subsidizing their affluent beachfront lifestyle. And quite the opposite is really the, the norm. You know, the, these are people who are, whose homes are being slowly dissolved, whose lives and livelihoods are being slowly taken from them. And many of them want nothing more than to escape this fate. Um, and they have gone through a very painful process in deciding that they would like to move somewhere safer. And yet our government is failing them by not helping them do that. And instead we are wasting billions of dollars to pin them in place until the waters come and take their home. Rob Moore is a senior policy analyst with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Elizabeth Rush is the author of Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore. It's out now. It is a uh, really unique read to go through this in a personal sense and get a real personal feeling about flooding and displacement and people and, and the environment. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, and I hope some people come out tonight at 6 p.m. and continue the discussion at the Harold Washington Library. So that'll be a great event. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the 100th anniversary of the Chopin Theater. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Chopin Theater is a multidisciplinary arts center in the heart of Wicker Park, and the theater is celebrating its 100th anniversary. There are a series of events to commemorate it. With me is my weekend passport friend, Nari Safavi, who has enjoyed the Chopin Theater many a times. And um, what do you love about going to the Chopin and, and the fine owners who are here with us, Nari? 
I think that uh, one of the most enjoyable things about the Chopin Theater is that you feel like you're like in some sort of an intimate European theater experience where uh, the theater is sort of a part of the fabric of the city. It's a neighborhood theater kind of a thing. And uh, when I went there for the first time, it was really amazing the kind of experimental, edgy things that are we, uh, that are, we're willing to do. And this is going back to early 90s, so it's almost approaching three decades. I think it's been a, a place of rich uh, content and, and artistic involvement for people in the Wicker Park area, and the co-owners are with us. Uh, Zygmunt uh, Drajic is here, and Leila Hedrajic is the co-owner and diplomat-in-chief at the Chopin Theater. <laughs> and and we sleep together. <laughs> you, are, you are married people. Yes. Now, um, tell the story. Now, the, the Chopin Theater is celebrating its 100th anniversary. You have not owned it all 100 years. Pretty close. No. Oh, not yet, even though <laughs> biologically this I am 127 uh, by working. So it it was like a four seasons for Chopin Theater. Um, uh, it was built in 1918. That's a year uh, when, when also Poland get independence. So before that, there was a lot of uh, Polish immigrants in neighborhood, like 99.9 percent. Um, with four big churches, some of them 40,000 people. And then in 1918, they moved, some of them, to Poland because it was independent. And some of them moved to the suburbs because, you know, suburbs become, they still have little green stuff, you know, and <laughs> air conditioning and TV. Yep. And then uh, American City went down. You know, it was more like Dead Wish movies. And that was very unsafe neighborhood, with a lot of gangs, mostly vacant houses. And uh, so that was like a winter. And then spring came with the artists. They, they saw the neighborhood is close to downtown. There's also the mosaic of different ethnic groups. There's uh, Puerto Ricans and uh, Mexicans and still Polish and Ukrainians and... and African Americans on the other side, and they they love that uh, mixed culture. Also, financially, they could rent apartment for three hundred dollars, which is right now three thousand dollars. And then after that spring, and artists organized themselves. There was some huge festival uh, festivals like around the Coyote, when on one weekend six hundred sixty. Places were open with art, with galleries and performances, and this was great. And then some of the rich kids came from suburbs, and they romanticized poverty, and they say loved living, and they put their paintings in those lofts, and and some money started to flow in. And then the summer came, and the harvest, (laughs) and uh, now we have those uh, 500 to 1.5 million dollars apartments growing. You've got gentrification. It's all (laughs) which which is which is kind of a bipolar issue, uh, because when you have theater like this in 1990, and you have to clean every day or few times a day, people coming at five o'clock from the bars, you know. And it's very unsafe, and you have a lot of bullets in your uh, in your windows. You want gentrification because you also want audience to come and see the artist. Yep. Uh, so, 
and also vacant buildings. You could buy. I bought three buildings around the corner for thirty-seven thousand dollars. What a deal, Layla! <laughs> how do you remember all this? Is this uh, the journey you remember? Yeah, I'm a native Chicagoan, and I I do remember uh, the neighborhood being very different. I think uh, in a span of that 100 year period that he's talking about, you have seen this um, seismic change. Growing up in the city, um, you certainly didn't go into Wicker Park then, uh, but it's done a 180. Uh, it's very vibrant. Uh, there's not as many art organizations as there used to be. And that's something that we'll be talking about tonight when we talk about the um, evolution of the building and the neighborhood uh, over these 100 years. And how about your own evolution? I mean, I know that you were in the part of the corporate world. You were an executive for Motorola. And then you all of a sudden drop everything. You marry Zygmunt and start to become the head of operations over here. Well, it certainly has been an adventure. I was yeah. doing marketing. You're right. I was yeah. doing marketing for Kraft Foods for a number of years, yeah. and I was uh, looking for um, direction, excitement, something different in my life. I was doing 10, 12 hours a day, and so I volunteered for the Saints group, um, a lovely organization. And my first assignment was Chicago Shakes, and my second assignment was uh, Chopin Theater with Zygmunt. And uh, we, we struck up a <laughs> conversation, and we were married 10 days later. So it's been an adventure for sure. Hey, that was fast. It was. Yeah, yeah. I, I took her to Key West, and uh, nobody was there, and it seems like it was a good idea. <laughs> um, uh, tell us about some of the events that are going down at, well, tonight and, and, and this week. Well, this evening, uh, we have the kickoff, if you will, of our uh, 100th centennial ce celebration. We're having um, a art discussion. We're starting at 5 p.m. with a um, complimentary reception, and then we have a, a gentleman from Germany, Daniel Feiler. Uh, he does these wonderful installations, um, golf, luxurious golf courses in uh, East Berlin public housing. So he really tries to do these things where um, – yeah. go ahead. Very poor people play golf. <laughs> <laughs> to put it, to put it short. And then we have uh, guests from former great organizations, uh, Guild Complex Poetry, Michael, uh, Michael War. We have uh, 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 Elizabeth Burke from Around the Coyote. We have Kate Smith from the Great Bop Shop Jazz Club. Michael War, the uh, creator of uh, the Guild Complex, Guild Literary Complex, and then. Eddie Torres uh, from the Chicago Latino Theater, which evolved into Teatro Vista. Yeah, but it was on that time was burned because uh, <laughs> uh, because it was burned. Uh, so um, so they we, we asked them what it would take to bring them back to Chicago because they are like in San Francisco, Texas, or other places. And uh, we thought that at the time that we'd be like French Quarter or Edinburgh Festival because I think today. Richness is not as important as as, as uh, uniqueness. So we go to the places. Our hobby is camping. So we take a car. We go to British Columbia in like you know one day or two days, and you want to see those beautiful places, and they are disappearing. And there's uh, the many countries are protecting that. You know, in uh, Irish people protect pubs. There was a law right now that you cannot demolish pub without consent of community because it's community place. In Barcelona, they they say, we don't want more hotels because it's too many tourists and you cannot go. Uh, food mart uh, f for tourists is closed 
until like 11. And there's a lot of instances like that that that, that people protect that originality. So if you go to New Orleans, uh, you have preservation hall, and that's why perhaps you go. But there, and I think that that perhaps uh, also in Chicago, that kind of movement of those original places uh, will make city, you know, tourist attraction. But also, it is an issue of intellectualism that you need those places which are safe. I think there are a lot of artists right now and students of arts are afraid, afraid to talk. And I think the places when you talk with person and you know the person for a certain time, uh, you you try to convince person and they try to convince you and you have melting pot, uh, melting pot rather than mosaic of different people in different locations. And I think that's what we try to do at the theater to, right. to have those... Um, theater events or literary salons or music events, and, and we do quite a number of single one-day-only events where right. you get a group of people together and you have that space where you can talk about a variety of issues, even if they're opposing issues. Um, so that's what we try yeah, we, to accomplish. We do like 500 events a year. No, that's, uh, that uh, salon space that you have downstairs is one of the most intimate uh, places and one of the most... Uh, uh, how can I say, colorful and right. uh, warm places to yeah. have some sort of an event that feels like a cabaret, and you have a really you have a um, you know nicely decorated with a piano uh, mm. on the corner over there. It just feels like yeah, a really it's great a, place. To it's have really it. intentional, and, and I think we've been fortunate. I think to have artists from forty countries come and bring their international perspective. We've right. Done but also, with we, we, we're reckless uh, because <laughs> we don't have any grants. <laughs> we don't have non-for-profit status. So, so we, we, you know, I think there's nothing on the Internet or, or press. There's thousand articles, nothing negative. But it's also we would like to push envelope as much as possible and talk about uh, issue and meet, meet different people and uh, um, it's tough, you know. I'm 66, so it's hard, harder to climb the steps or ladders yeah. or scaffolds <laughs> or something like that. But uh, but I think that's that's one of the issues. Like I said, for us today is that uh, opportunity and limits of of uh, very wide discussions about what's going on, about other issues. And, and I think those places when you sit with some, let's say, bar or restaurants without electronic screens, and you can just talk with a person, mm-hmm. uh, are quite important. You, I think more important even the events we do is what is after the events, that people stay for a couple hours, and, and people right. who talk. know about other people just Absolutely. because yeah. someone says so, I said, wow, I didn't know that, yeah. that this happened because you have sick son who is in hospital, or because of what was so you have a lot of really uh good you know very warm feeling spaces in the in the different nooks and crannies of the building in the mm-hmm. theater in the lobby where it just doesn't feel like you're just at a place where you're just consuming art you feel like you want to hang out and then the artists come by and then you can sit down but on the Mary, sofa thank you very much but this is not just about us we are on that point that is about uh, i have to do my Bucket list, okay. And one of them is to stay in Chicago. We moved from Chicago because there was some problem with the bar next door, and they closed the bar. So we moved to Gary, Indiana, Miller Beach, which is east mm-hmm. of Gary, Indiana. We live in the house which we on the lake, which we pay thousand dollars a year taxes. So, uh, so the issue is that 
how much with all the love and all the life I spent all my life here to b- do those buildings right. which were for demolition. But is Chicago going to be the city where is this vibrant, not corporate, but vibrant? Well, I think we'll tackle some of that tonight. <laughs> exactly. You know, no, that's other another part of the charming thing. There is art and there is activism right. component to it and yes. community involvement. That's actually what's one of the why Chopin Theater has been such an asset to Chicago scene. So the uh, reception starts at 5 p.m. tonight at the Chopin Studio, and then uh, your German architect, Daniel Thieler, uh, is starting at 6, and then at 6.45, you've got the Made in Wicker Park panel, um, and that's all tonight. And And then then we have a party. We have three bands. We have free food, and all the people who perform on our stage are free. And uh, complimentary admission for artists that have performed there till before. One, till one o'clock. Yeah. That is really an anniversary party. Yeah. You guys are not messing around. <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks very much for joining us, Zygmunt Dreijek and uh, Leila Dreijek and Nari Safavi, who has enjoyed the Chopin Theater throughout the years. Uh, the 100th anniversary is going on, and tonight you can join them at the Chopin Theater and enjoy the rest of the uh, centennial celebration. Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll talk thanks to you soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about the trial of the century, the uh, uh, various amount of rallies that are going on surrounding the trial of the century. It's 21 young people, youths, who are charging the U.S. government with uh, not doing enough to battle climate change. And we'll talk about that tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Mike Gilmore engineered. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.